0: Our second scripture reading is a continuation of the passage that Bill just read for us. Again, from Acts chapter 17, this time beginning with verse 22. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all gives to all mortals life and breath and all things from one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit to inhabit the whole earth and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of their places where they would live so that they would search for god and perhaps grope for him and find him though indeed he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the de- that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he Will have cause to have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, "We want to hear you again about this." At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. I googled God this week. I got nearly 4.9 billion results in half a second, which included God's Wikipedia page and God's socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A few years ago, the Pew Foundation funded a research project called The Internet and American Life to see what kind of impact the web was having on each one of us. What they found was that almost two-thirds of internet users, 64 percent, have done things online that relate to religious or spiritual matters. That means that 82 million people read religious news online, looked for answers to life's problems, searched for a place of worship, asked for prayers, researched other religions, and looked for information about the Bible. I can only imagine that today, especially as we look backwards into the depths of the pandemic when churches and mosques and synagogues were meeting digitally, that this number has to have grown astronomically higher. People of Athens, Paul says, although he could be saying it to us, people of these United States, people of Tennessee, people of Knoxville. I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Paul is making an unexpected visit to Athens. He had been in Thessalonica preaching, but as he was known to do, Paul angered the Thessalonians so much that they ran him straight out of town. So he went to Berea, but was followed by Thessalonians who wanted to stir up the crowds against him there. So the Berean Christians, fearing for Paul's life, shipped him off to Athens. And we need to know that first century Athens was a anything-goes kind of town. It was a port city, a university town, the birthplace of Socrates and the home of Aristotle and Plato and the Acropolis and the Parthenon. It was a town where a little bit of everything and anything goes. I fondly picture Athens as the first century's version of Berkeley, California, where I spent a few years earning my undergraduate degree. A friend of mine who I grew up with and who also attended Berkeley describes the town and the university as a big bowl of granola, crunchy and nutty and flaky. (laughs) Sure, the Berean Christians thought Athens has to be the kind of place where Paul, even Paul, couldn't possibly offend anyone. So Paul's been whisked out of Berea in a hurry, and while he waits in Athens for the rest of his traveling companions to arrive, he wanders around on his own to find out more about the city, about its people and its culture. What he discovers are shrines and altars all over the city dedicated to a variety of gods, and he begins to debate the existence of those gods wherever and with whomever he finds. In synagogues with Jews, in the marketplace with business leaders, and finally, in the town center with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. That last debate is what takes him to the Areopagus, named after Ares, the god, the Greek god of war, also known as Mars. So you've often heard to it referred as Mars Hill. The Areopagus in Paul's day functioned as a sort of city hall, a city assembly, a town center, a place where debates could be heard and verdicts rendered. It was not so much public trial as public forum, a place where the philosophers of Athens could hear and discuss new ideas. And according to Luke, who we know wrote the book of Acts, Athenians liked nothing better than new ideas. So Paul comes to the Areopagus to speak. People of Athens, he begins. I can see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Archaeologists have never found this altar. But according to legend, in the 5th century BCE, Athens was suffering from a terrible plague. The Athenians took it as a sign that some god was angry with them, and they needed to appease that god with sacrifices. But which god? And what if it was a god that they did not yet know? So they came up with a plan. The philosopher Epimenides gathered a flock of sheep took them to the Areopagus, and then just released them. The sheep wandered around Athens and the surrounding hills and neighborhoods. Epimenides convinced the Athenians that any time a sheep would stop and lie down, a sacrifice should be made to the local god of that place. In Athens, lots of gardens and buildings were associated with a specific god or goddess. And so at that spot, an altar was constructed and a sacrifice made to that particular deity. But at least one, if not several, of the sheep led the Athenians to a location that had no god associated with it. So to be on the safe side, they built an altar there to whatever whatever god it might be. From that point on, in addition to worshipping their 12 main gods, the ancient Greeks also worshipped what they called Agnostos Theos, the unknown God. The unknown God wasn't so much a deity as a kind of placeholder for any God that they may have missed. In other words, the altar to the unknown God was a way for the Athenians to cover all their bases. If one God failed them, maybe the unknown God would bail them out. That was ancient Greece, but If you get into a cab or an Uber or a Lyft in Chicago or Los Angeles or New York or some other big city, chances are you'll see the same thing. A lucky rabbit's foot in the cup holder. An air freshener with the picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary dangling from the rearview mirror. A bobblehead Buddha on the dashboard and a Darwin fish with feet decal on the trunk, covering all the bases. People are looking for an experience of the divine. That's what keeps millions of us, maybe even billions, searching for a higher power anywhere we can find it, even on Facebook and Instagram. And that's what kept the Athenians constantly on the hunt for something new as well. Luke suggests that it was the Epicureans and the Stoics who invited Paul to speak at the Areopagus. The Epicureans, you may remember, were basically atheists. They taught that belief in the gods is not particularly useful, especially in light of all the suffering in the world. If the gods do exist, the Epicureans said, they obviously don't care that much about us. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Stoics, on the other hand, had a well-developed theology that taught that the mind of God, in their case Zeus, the highest of the gods, is the source of all reason. The universe, they said, is orderly and rational. And if we can reason it all out, if we can become clear, logical, unbiased thinkers, then we can comprehend the logos, the universal reason. Now, I'm wading into dangerous waters here. I'm no philosopher, and I know that there are at least a couple of people in this congregation who have a greater grasp of philosophy than me, and I happen to be married to one of them. So I'm going to stop while I'm ahead. But more than that, I know that ancient Greek philosophy is not what got you out of bed this morning and has you sitting here in the pews. Harry Emerson Fosdick warned preachers that no one listens to a sermon desperate to discover what happened to the Jebusites in the Old Testament. And I have a feeling that's the same this morning. However interesting, that trivia about sheep wandering around Athens or the comparison of Epicurean and Stoic theologies, that's not going to do a lot to get you through the week. But the question I keep coming back to is what was it that Paul found troubling in Athens. I don't, think particularly, I don't particularly think it was the altars or the statues. I don't think that it was the logic or the reason or the philosophy. I think what troubled Paul was that the Athenians thought that this is all there was to God. The God who made the world and everything in it, Paul says. The God who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, you cannot box God in with words or logic or carved granite altars. Paul is preaching about the resurrection, and if the resurrection tells us anything, it tells us about a wild, reckless, elusive, crucified Savior who refuses to stay dead, and who, by the power of the Spirit, is now loose in the world. God does not live in shrines made by human hands. God couldn't be confined by a graveyard and a tomb. God's not going to be confined by statues or sanctuaries, or the status quo. One of my favorite theologians and preachers is Walter Brueggemann, which is why I loved the study we just wrapped up on Wednesday nights. In a meeting this week, Brent Trenum reminded me of another one of his books. So I went back and started to flip through it. In the word militant, Brueggemann suggests, and I've been thinking a lot about this this week, in months recently, he suggests that we live in a society wracked with acute anxiety. We're anxious about the war in Ukraine. We're anxious about the end of Title 42. We're anxious about the debt ceiling and the economy. We're anxious about global warming and AR-15s and mass shootings and pension plans. We're anxious about getting into the right college and finding the right job, about health care (laughs) costs, about having somebody sit with us in the cafeteria. We're anxious about our marriages, about being alone. We're anxious about our kids and not getting sick or hurt. We're anxious about everything. And in a society of acute anxiety, Brueggemann says, people want moral certainty. They want black and white. They want to know that X is always right and Y is always wrong. As I mentioned in my sermon last week, they want four spiritual laws or 10 commandments or seven habits. They want to know that God is always going to act in the same prearranged, predetermined, preordained, predictable way. I think that's why, over the last two or three decades, people in this country have been flocking to big evangelical megachurches. They're looking for certainty and absolutes, black and white, no shades of gray. Time will tell whether that trend's going to continue, although there's already signs that it's tapering off. Some studies are reporting that people say they're leaving their church because they want more God in their lives than they're able to find at church. Brueggemann says, The problem is that our society places so much importance on technology and precision and control. We get fooled into thinking, he writes, that if we know all the codes, if we have all the answers, then we can pin all meaning down. Get all mysteries right. Have our own way without surprise, without deception, without amazement, without gift, without miracle, without anything that signals mystery or risk. The truth is, of course, is that we're looking for a predictable God. If we're looking for a predictable God, we've come to the wrong place. The God of the resurrection is a God who specializes in miracles and risks and impossibilities, a God who brings life where there's only death, a God who brings hope where there's only despair, a God who's big enough to understand our complex lives and our complex world, a God of the unknown. Fred Craddock tells a great story about being invited to preach at a church one day, a big, impressive, influential church, as he put it. He met the pastor before the service, and as they walked to the sanctuary, they put on their robes, and just as they got to the door, the pastor said, you go in, I'll be there in just a second. So Craddock went in and sat down, and pretty soon the service started, but the pastor still hadn't shown up. The organist started the first hymn, and everyone stood and was getting ready to sing when all of a sudden there was a commotion about halfway down the side aisle. Craddock said he looked up just in time to see the pastor with his robe hiked up to his waist, climbing through the side window. They all stopped and wanted to see what was going on. The pastor nonchalantly came to the front, stood next to Craddock, opened his hymnal, and started to sing. Craddock leaned over and said, why did you do that? The pastor said, I just thought I'd shake things up. (laughs) The resurrection is about a God who is always shaking things up. A God who's on the loose. A God who is doing, as Paul says, immeasurably more than we dare ask or imagine. God of the unknown. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, one of the characters is describing Aslan to the children. Aslan, of course, is the great lion who represents Christ. Is he a man, Lucy asks. Aslan, a man, Mr. Beaver sternly says. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver says? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. It's not safe, but it's good. Thanks be to God. Amen.
1: Let us turn to God in prayer. Nurturing God on this Mother's Day, we pause to remember the gifts of mothering, and we remember as we pause to give thanks for the ways you, O God and Creator, parent and sustainer of us all, are a mother to us, for nurturing us, giving us the guidance and the freedom we need, for comforting us when we are wounded in body or spirit, for helping us to heal and to be stronger for it, for believing in and challenging us, calling us to be more than we are, encouraging us to live out our potential, for reminding us to keep trying and growing. Oh God, we offer these words of thanks. And on this day, we give thanks for those who have been like mothers to us, some related to us through blood, others that come into our lives through happenstance, some who have been part of our lives for decades, some of them new to us, but many who have nurtured, taught, comforted, challenged, and encouraged us. Without them, we would not be who we are. And so we give thanks for them and all that we have learned from. And yet, in the midst of our thankfulness, we remember that there are those for whom this day is difficult, those for whom the relationship between mother and child is strained or difficult or non-existent, for those who desperately want to be mothers, those who are distanced from their mothers by geography or illness or unhealed hurts or communication failures, for those who long to be mothers but could not, for those who have said farewell to mothers or children, not to meet again until we join in the life which lies beyond this life, for all these mothers and children who meet pain or struggle this day, we pray for comfort, that they they would know they are not alone. O God, we pray for those whose lives seek hope, peace, and justice. Remembering our brothers and sisters who live in conflict and war, with disease and injury, with little food or clean water, with addiction, with strained or broken relationships, and those who live as outcasts. We lift up especially the people of this world who are struggling with war, for the people of Sudan, South Sudan, and Ukraine. O God, disrupt the violence and death, and turn our weapons into paths of peace. We pray for all those in our own lives, our families, and our church and community, and we especially lift up those who are graduating and taking the next steps in their lives. We celebrate with them and pray that you continue to guide them in love, mercy, and justice. Oh God, we lift up those who need your healing touch, especially for Earl Hagler as he begins the journey to you in death. We pray for Ian Phillips, for the McAdoo's, for Bill Mintier, and for Mary Stuart Neely. Grant them comfort and healing mercies. And so hear our cries, O God, and hasten to us. Hear our prayers, those said aloud, and those that are in the depths of our hearts. And now we pray that prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings.